Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Job. We've been studying the book of Job. The first two chapters was Job in the hands of Satan. In chapters 3 through 37 was Job in the hands of his friends. And 38 through 42, Job in the hands of God. If you want to look at it in that way, you have a threefold division of the book. We got down to verse 19 in the 39th chapter. Job 39, verse 19, and we'll pick up there for our lesson tonight. We have been describing several various animals and fowls, the ostrich, and some have said it's the stork, and others uh, talk about uh, different kinds of, of uh, feathered fowls. Uh, but we find that in the Bible, in the Hebrew, it's hard sometimes to define exactly what it's uh, what uh, animal is referred to. In fact, there's so much controversy that some of these things we'll mention tonight when we get into the 40th chapter and the 41st chapter. If you had a New King James Version Bible translation, which I don't like, but uh, anyway, on 40 verse 15 and 41 verse 1, both of them say, concerning these two verses, a large animal, exact identity unknown when we talk about the behemoth and the leviathan. So we'll get into those. And then others says a large sea creature, and it says exact identity unknown. But there, there are Hebrew words that indicate some of these animals that are very difficult to define. So if some of you look at reference Bibles and uh, Bible dictionaries and different things, don't be surprised if you find one saying, well, this refers to this kind of a creature, and another one saying it refers to that kind. Because uh, there's a variation of opinion. If you've ever seen Hebrew written, sometimes just a little dot or a little apostrophe or something between there may indicate the difference between one thing and another. And sometimes it's very hard to define. And so we'll just take it like we have it here in the King James Version of the Bible and uh, take it for face value and go right on. Okay, verse 19. It's concerning the horse. Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou closed his neck with thunder? Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. Now remember that the Lord is speaking to Job and says, Job, can you do all of these things? And he had already been uh, talking to him about some of the things that was in God's power only to do. And he's speaking of the horse here. By the way, canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? Uh, in Joel chapter 2, verse 4, let me read it for you. It says this, The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses. He's referring to the locusts. And he says the appearance of them is the appearance of horses. And as horsemen, so shall they run. So the Bible even itself draws a close resemblance between a grasshopper and a horse. In fact, there's one, I believe it's uh, maybe the Chinese, but one group of people called the grasshopper little horses. Uh, so we find that there's all kinds of play on the different thoughts here about the horse. Let's go on and read. It says in verse 21, 39, verse 21, He pawneth in the valley and rejoiceth in his strength. He goeth out to meet the armed men. He mocketh at fear and is not affrighted. Neither turneth his back from the sword. You know, God has given this animal, this uh, animal serviceable to man, and basically the war horse is spoken of. And uh, he's not afraid of anything going out to battle because he doesn't realize that there's danger out there. He just 
gallops right on and eats up the ground. He swallows up the ground with fierceness. Look in verse 24. In verse 23, the quiver rattleth against him, the glittering spear and the shield. Doesn't worry a horse, does it? Verse 24, he swallows up the ground. That is, he just goes and, and uh, covers it so fast it looks like he's just eating it up. With fierceness and rage, neither believeth he that it is the sound of the trumpet. He saith among the trumpets, Ha, ha. Actually, the words here indicate his name, Ha, ha. And he smelleth the battle afar off, and the thunder of the captains, and the shouting. Uh, we wouldn't, if we were to translate the Hebrew into some more definite term than just ha, ha. We use that ha, ha as we're laughing, but it refers mostly to the, the way the horse uh, gives forth his name. And he smelleth the battle afar off, the thunder of the captains, and the shouting. And so he tells us about the horse and its mighty power. And he says, Job, can you make the horse, can you make him do all of these things? Where did he get all of this uh, uh, courage and strength and power and all of these qualities that belong to him? And what the Lord is showing Job, he's saying, Job, if you're so smart and you know so much, can you make all of these things happen? And he's using all of his creatures, these various creatures, to show his power and his knowledge, show God's knowledge and power and creative power. Verse 26, he says, Doth the hawk fly by wisdom, by thy wisdom, and stretch her wings toward the south? He's saying, Job, you know the birds of the air are proofs of the wonderful power and providence of God, and the hawk has wisdom to follow the sun in winter. God gave him this wisdom and not man. He says, Job, did you tell the hawk that he should fly to the south for the sunny weather? Did you tell the birds that they should migrate? That's what the Lord is saying to Job. He says, who gave them that knowledge and why is it they do that? Because God has given them that knowledge. And he's really bringing Job down to humble himself and say, well, you know, I can't do any of that. And, you know, it would be almost foolish for me even to make such claim as to have any hand in what the the hawk does in flying to the south or other birds as well, the migration of various fowls. And then he says in verse 27, Doth the eagle mount up at thy command? Have you caused the eagle to fly in the heights of heaven? Remember in Psalm, not Psalm, but Isaiah 40 and verse uh, 31, it says, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. They'll fly, they'll run, and they'll walk. We're talking about the people that wait upon the Lord. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. You know, there's a lot of people that want to wait on the Lord and just long enough to mount up with wings as eagles. But then it just says they shall run and not be weary. They keep on. And they have steadfastness and continuance in following the Lord. And then it says, and they shall walk and not faint. They're able to fly and they're able to run and they're able to walk if they wait upon the Lord. Some people only want the flying. Others want the running. But how many people want to walk with the Lord? Remember, we preached a sermon here a while back on the Enoch. He walked with God and was not found, for God took him. But anyway, we find here that the eagle is spoken of. And it says, hold your place where we're studying. Job chapter 39 and verse uh, 27, Doth the eagle mount up at thy command? Job, did you make this command to them and make her nest on high? 
Did you give her the wisdom to do this? She dwelleth and abideth on the rock, upon the crag of the rock, in safety. In a strong place, she's in safety, in her refuge. And verse 29, from thence she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off. The eagle looks way off and, and finds her prey. Her young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there she, is she. By the way, that's the way that she feeds her young, on the fresh uh, slain uh, flesh. In chapter 40, verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, and this is the Lord, the word the Lord here in the next three places is Jehovah. Moreover, Jehovah answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. He's telling Job, Do you want to contend with me about things? Then Job answered the Lord, and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. In other words, I'll speak no more. What is there to say? Job is saying, I don't have anything to say. Once have I spoken, but will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Job says, I found out that I better listen to God. He listened to his friends and interrupted them, or uh, basically answered them after their speeches each time. But he says, now I'm listening to God. Maybe I just better be quiet. You know, sometimes when friends talk, we'll argue back and forth, won't we? And then Job, before God was speaking, he was arguing and contending uh, against God, too. But then when God began to speak to him, he says, maybe I better be quiet a while. And I think that's what we need to do is learn to let the Lord speak to us. And so verse 6 Job answers no more. If you'll notice verse 6, it says, Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, uh, gird, up, uh, gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. You know, Job's friends had condemned him. And Elihu, the other one that had come along after they had spoken, had sharply spoken as well to him. But God is more merciful and kind and he's trying to just show Job one fact after another. And he asks him questions, one question after another. And so he begins in verse uh, 7. He says, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? He's saying, Job, am I just in my dealings? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? See, Job might maintain his righteousness and declare his righteousness to to his friends, but he says, are you going to maintain your righteousness? Are you going to condemn God and say, God, you have no right to condemn me because I'm so righteous that thou mayest be righteous? And the Lord is asking him these questions. Hast thou an arm like God? The arm speaks of power. Do you have a power that God has? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like, like him? You know, when the Lord puts us on the spot and he says, do you have power? Do you have a voice like God has? you have the arm? Remember, he's delivered with an arm, out of, a strong arm. He delivered the children of Israel out of bondage. It says, with a strong arm brought he them out. And that speaks of his power. So God is showing Job that he has mighty power. Deck, now, deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. He's saying, Job, act like the Lord now. Act like God. You deck yourself with majesty and excellency and array thyself with glory and beauty. Look at this. 
cast abroad the rage of thy wrath. And behold, everyone that is proud and abase him. See, God had dominion over the proud, too. He says, look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down uh, the wicked in their place. God could do this, but Job certainly couldn't. He says, hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. There are two thoughts about binding their faces. One is that bind their faces seems to refer to the custom of preserving mummies. You bind their faces up to, for preservation. And another is uh, a person about to be executed, his face is bound or blindfolded. And he says in verse 14, Then will I, al- uh, will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. He says, Job, if you can do all these things that I just mentioned, and if you'll notice, go back there and you'll find the thing about God's judgment and about his power, the arm of his flesh, and about his majesty and about the rage uh, cast abroad the rage of wrath and behold everyone that is proud verse 11 and all of these things he said Joe if you can do all of these things then will I also confess unto thee that thine own righteousness can save thee well if he could not do these things then it would stand the reason that his own righteousness could not save him right look at verse 15 now verse 15 of this chapter and verse 1 of the 41st chapter you have Behemoth, and then you have Levithan of chapter 41, verse 1. Behemoth signifies uh, animals in general. And uh, we'll get into the meaning of these things the best we can in just a moment. But he says, Behold now Behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong as pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. It says, Surely the mountains bring uh, him forth food where all the beasts of the field play. He lieth under the shady trees in the cover of the reed and fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. The whole river. He taketh it with his eyes. His noise pierceth through snares. Now, there are two animals that are spoken of in that people believe that this behemoth is really speaking of the hippopotamus, and some say he's the elephant. Now then, we're not going to argue which one it is, because we don't know. That's one reason. You never try to argue something you don't really know, do you? But uh, basically, uh, here only he's characterized by the description given. And so you follow the description, you come near making up your mind as to what animal is represented. Most people believe that it's the hippopotamus. And some believe that this animal is now altogether extinct. But this description is an argument for us to humble ourselves before God who made such a great creature as this that he can do all the things that are spoken of. And if this great creature cannot quarrel with his maker, then how should you and I? Why should you and I try to quarrel with God? And if we cannot stand before this great creature that God has made, then why should we try to stand before God who made him? And I think that's basically the lesson, whether you want to define him as the elephant or as the, as the uh, uh, 
hippopotamus. In my marginal reference, it says the elephant. But all that I've studied indicates the hippopotamus. And uh, both of them have a lacking of the description that's given, and some have some similarities to the description that's given. There was one commentary that said this was an animal extinct, and that according to this description and the way that he's portrayed, he would have been 25 feet high and 60 feet in length, like some of the extinct animals that we think about. And I'm not that well acquainted with uh, studying all the animals that have ceased to be, or they've become extinct. But all I know about this is that uh, this great creature, of course, God has shown, and he's saying, uh, Job, I want you to look at him. And when you look at this creature that I've made, then should that give you any reason whatsoever to reply against God and to try to argue with God? If you can't even control one of these, you know, if this animal can do all the things that he's spoken of as doing. Now then you come to chapter 41, and it says, Canst thou draw out Levithan with an hook? And most uh, people believe that this refers to the crocodile or alligator. And then some say also that this, this is a sea creature, a large sea creature that is also extinct. And we don't have any further indication except what you can study in a Bible dictionary. Or if you were a Hebrew scholar, you might go back and make a case for uh, the crocodile or the alligator or a larger one than we know today. But regardless, it does seem to be more the crocodile than anything else that I can, can think of. We'll give you some information on that as we go along. But it was all given to show and convince Job of his weakness. This is what both of them were given for, by the way. To show Job how weak he was. And to show God's great power. He says, Canst thou draw out Levithan with an hook? Are you going out here with a fish hook and catch him? Or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Can you put him in, in servitude? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Let your uh, bind him up for your maidens. Shall the companions make a banquet for him? Shall they part him among the merchants? He's saying, Job, can you take care of this creature that I'm talking about? Canst thou fit, uh, fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? We know that if it is speaking of the crocodile, his skin is pretty tough, isn't it? Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him, stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? And see, there's the bottom line. He says, if you cannot do anything to this crocodile, we'll call him that for sake of exposition, then certainly, if you can't go out and wrestle with him, if you don't have any power to control him, then he says, who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion." Who can discover, discover the face of his garment, or who can come to him with his double bridle? You're going to put a bridle on him? Can you imagine going out and opening the mouth of a crocodile and putting a bit in his mouth and a bridle? I don't think so. Not me. And you see them catching the alligators, you know, and crocodiles with a 
they put a rope and noose around their nose, don't they, and drag them around and do certain things. But brother, they, their mouth better be closed if you start fooling with them. And I, I wouldn't even want to do that. I'll leave that to the professionals. But he's asking Job all these questions to show that Job has not the power that Job would like to claim. Then he goes on in verse uh, 14. Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible roundabout. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to the other that no air can come between them. They are joined. Think of the scaly uh, skin and the and the uh, outer skin of the crocodile or the alligator. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his nestings a light does shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. His eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Concerning this, the Egyptian hieroglyphics paint his eyes, or the eyes of the crocodile, as a symbol for morning, the morning coming new day because the eyes appear the first thing before the whole body emerges from the deep the eyes are seen just as he comes out of the water and they let this symbolize the beginning of the day and so notice verse 18 by his nestings a light does shine and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning i wonder if that's where they get it out of his mouth Go burning lamps and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils go a smoke as, as out of the seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. So a spear... A knife or anything else, you can hard you can hardly pierce the outer flesh of the crocodile. And this is to imitate the terror of the wrath of God. That God cannot, uh, you know, God can withstand all kinds of of uh, slurs and things that come against Him, and yet He's more powerful than all His power. It says His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of the breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the habergon. He esteemeth iron as straw, and brass as rotten wood. He's a pretty mighty creature, isn't he? The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned uh, with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spread a sharp pointed things upon the mire. That would indicate that, you know, the when he crawls upon the edge of the, the river or the lake. And the look at that. It says, um, he maketh, verse 30, sharp stones are under him. He spread a sharp pointed things upon the mire. You'd see it goes along on the mire, and you'd see the prints that he makes there. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot, and he maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. Upon earth there is not his like, who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things. He is king over all the children of pride. Now then, if this creature is of such, then God can look down upon the pride of man and he can and he's above them and can handle them in any situation. 
So we find that the Lord mentions all of these great creatures to show Job's need for power and his uh, real, his really, his weakness. And if you and I see, you know, we can look at God's creation, we can look at all the great creatures He's made, and a lot of times we see ourselves very small, do, do we not? Especially when we think of, you know, we go out here and if we go out here in the jungle and see the the elephants and we see the lions and the tigers and all the the beasts and you know uh, a grizzly bear might scare you a little bit and uh, you know some of the things some of the creatures that God has made sure would me I'd get out of there pretty quick I'm not talking about these little brown bears we got up here I'm talking about those that stand up there about so high when they stand up there with their paws stretched out you slap you one lick and you're nothing but gone but uh, we're when we see the, the power that God has given some of His creatures. Now then we get to the 42nd chapter. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything. He says, Lord, I think you've convinced me. And we've just been reading along and kind of trying to describe somewhat as we read. But you read it for yourself. And then you come down to the 42nd chapter. And remember, Job has been hearing all this. And Job says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do uh, everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. He says, You not only can do everything, but you know everything. Now, this 42nd chapter will get more close to home to all of us. We'll deal with it a little more in detail. Because Job has been convinced by now. Remember, his three friends couldn't convince him. Elihu could tell him a few things and he would listen, and yet he dealt very sharply with him. But when the Lord starts speaking to him, he's fully convinced. It's just like, you know, you have friends that come along and they'll argue with you about things. We'll call those Job's three friends. They'll argue and they'll debate. Well, Job, it's all because of your sins that, that this happened and... And, you know, if you wasn't so wicked, well, you you know, God wouldn't have permitted the devil to bring all these things in your life. And then Elihu comes along with more wisdom, and he points out some things about God. And he says, Job, now you don't have a right to stand up before God and claim that you're so righteous. He says, really, this is your main problem. You're claiming you're too good as you stand before God. It's not that he was not good before men. But you, you're claiming that your righteousness is before God. It reminds me of... You and I will go along pretty well, and we, you know, we'll say, "Well, I'm just as good as the next fellow," and we make our arguments, don't we? Say, "Well, I'm just as good as he is," or "He's just, you know, that one's just as good as the next one." Well, that's well and good when you're talking to men, and then you have God's word preached to you once in a while, and you say, well, "Maybe I better wake up." That's a lie, you. And then first thing you know, the Lord by His Holy Spirit and His Word comes, and He says, "I'm going to talk to you a little bit." And then when he starts talking, we say, Woe is me, for I am undone. Job says, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. So the first thing Job does is make a confession. He realizes that God has all power, and that he has all knowledge. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord upon the ways of man, he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. The Bible says that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then it says, Hebrews 4, verse 13, 
Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So that means God knows our thoughts. That's what Job says. He knows our thoughts. That no thought can be withholding from thee. That he's all-seeing. The whole universe, visible and invisible, are under his control. In verse 3, Job says, Who is he that... Hideth counsel without knowledge. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. He says, Job is saying, this is Job's confession. He said, I've been talking about a lot of things I didn't even know anything about. I have uttered that which I understood not. And he says, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Now before, Job thought he really knew a great deal. But when he starts talking to the Lord and after he's fully convinced, he says, really, I didn't know much about it. I thought I did, but... uh, I'm convinced now that I understood not and things too wonderful, which I knew not. In verse 4, he says, Here I beseech thee, and I will speak, I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. He says, Lord, I want you to tell me now. I want you to tell me about myself. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, and now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Notice the three things, the things that he speaks of in verse 5 and 6. What did he say? I have heard thee by the hearing of the ear, and now mine eye seeth thee. Hearing and understanding caused him to see God in a different light. How does faith come? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Some people say, I want to see God. You see in this word, and he'll reveal to you what he is. And he'll show you himself. His majesty, His glory, His power, and everything, if you look into His Word. So notice, He says, I have heard thee of thee by the hearing of the ear, and now mine eye seeth thee. Now, Job didn't have a real vision of God and see God in the flesh, so to speak, or see, see a vision of His likeness or of His person. But he was saying, because of hearing, now I have a vision of what God is really like in His majesty and in His power and in His glory. So what is the necessity of man, then, to draw a clearer vision of God? To hear? Hear. And then he will see. And as a result, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, what happened? He had a revelation of God. First, he had a confession, back there in verse 2. And then he had a revelation. I have heard thee by the hearing of the ear. That's verse 5. But now mine eye seeth thee. And then it brought humiliation. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, self-abhorrence is the natural result and the natural consequence of coming face to face with God. Remember we quoted Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8, I believe it is. Isaiah, let's see if I can give it to you. Chapter 6. Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then, look at this, then said I, woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When did Isaiah say, Woe is me? He saw uh, 
the throne of God. He saw him high and lifted up. He saw the train filled his temple. He saw the seraphim uh, round about the throne. He saw them crying out, Holy, holy, holy. or heard them crying out, uh, Is the Lord of hosts? And then the post of the door, the power moved. It says the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me. See, it's after Isaiah saw the majesty of God that he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. That's like Job. He says, I've heard thee by the hearing of the ear, and now my eyes see, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. It brought him to repentance, and he's humiliated. In verse 7, I want to finish this. Let's go on. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. He's speaking to Eliphaz. What is he saying? Just to one of them. And against thy two friends. For you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Remember those three friends that comforted Job, or came to comfort him? Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. But the Lord now speaks to Eliphaz. Because he's, he's the one that the others followed after. Eliphaz condemned Job and the others just took up the same note. Doesn't that tell you something? You have one man that comes along and condemns you for something. You have a couple of guys over there that side right in with them. Isn't that the way it goes? They don't think for themselves. They say, well, so-and-so said this about him. Well, that must be so-and-so. They attack him too. You get two or three after him and the first thing you know, and everyone's against him. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Eliphaz. The Lord spake to Eliphaz the Temanite. My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. He doesn't even name the other two friends. God doesn't name them. For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. Now he takes up for Job. He says, Job spoke right. Look, therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant, my servant Job. He told the devil that too, didn't he? At the beginning, Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? The three friends started, the devil attacked him, and then the three friends started condemning, and now it comes right back, and God says he's still his servant. He's my servant. After all this transpired, and after Job really saw himself as he should have seen himself, then the Lord begins to take up for him. The Bible says, No weapon that is formed against thee that pro shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. That's what God says about his servant. Look at this. Take seven bullocks, seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I uh, accept lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. He tells these three friends, he tells Eliphaz and these three friends, he says, you offer sacrifices, and then you pray that Job, you ask Job to intercede for you. There's always, by the way, here's the pattern, sacrifice before uh, intercession. We have the sacrifice of Jesus, and then he ascended on high to intercede for us. The one mediator between the God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God requires sacrifice before he permits intercession. And he re required the sacrifice of Christ. These speak of, of course, sacrifices in the Old Testament. Speak all point to Christ. Even the Passover lamb and all the lambs and all the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to Christ, the true sacrifice. But the intercession came later. And it was by God's servant. 
that it came. In verse 9, it says, So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went, and did according to the, uh, as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Doesn't that tell you something? That in order for you and I to be blessed of God, we've got to turn around and be acceptable with one another and to pray for them. And they had been enemies, really. They had turned to be enemies. They were professed friends, really. But they had so condemned Job that they had become enemies. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for them that persecute you. Do good to them that despitefully use you. The Bible says, if you pray, forgive my sins. And if you do not forgive one another, neither will your what? Heavenly Father forgive you of your trespasses. Someone says, well, you know, I got this fellow and I just can't, I just can't forgive him. And then you go and say, God, forgive me. You just well quit praying until you are willing to forgive this other fellow. And I'm telling you the truth. Because he says, if you won't forgive him, neither will what? Your heavenly Father forgive you of your trespasses. So to really be right with God, listen, we have to be right with one another too. We have to be. You can't go around holding a grudge and being unforgiving and expect to be right with God. Someone said, well, I can be right with God, but I can't forgive myself. No, you can't. You just can't do that. It doesn't work that way. See, God, the Lord laid down the rules. You and I just have to follow. And so we must uh, humble ourselves and say, well, I'm going to... Now, it doesn't mean that your friend all the time, or even the people you pray for, or even your enemies are going to be reconciled to you. But you do all that's in your power to do. See, you can't make them do they may still hold a grudge against you. And there may still be a difference. But you can be forgiving at the same time. Say, well, I, I'm going to forgive them anyway. Even if they hold that grudge. And you can't help their reaction, but you certainly can help your reaction. Let's hurry. I want to give you this quickly and we'll close. The Lord, verse 10, the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord uh, gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. He was reconciled to his family. So the Lord blessed in the latter end of Job, uh, the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 4,000, 14,000 rather, sheep, 6,000 camels, and a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand she-asses. And if you go back and look, this is twice as many animals as he had to start with. Verse 13, I wanted to get to this. He had also seven sons and three daughters. Well, that's not twice as much. That's not twice as much. That's what he had to start with. It says God gave Job twice as much. You know why? He still had them. See, they were living souls. They weren't to be with God. If he had... If he'd have gave him twice as many sons and daughters, he'd had three times as many in heaven, wouldn't he? So he just gave him the same amount because they were still Job's. And Job knew the resurrection was coming. And someone says, oh, they were lost. No, they weren't lost. You know, for something to be lost, that means you don't know where it is. Right? He knew where they were. Someone says, I lost a loved one. No, you didn't. Not if they went to heaven. They just went there before you did. That's all that happened. They... You, you may be separated from them, but you're not lost from them. Lost is when you don't know where they are. But, uh, and so he gave him seven sons and three daughters. Now look, and he called the name of the first uh, Jemima. 
Jemima. Isn't that a familiar name? You know what Jemima means? It means daylight. Daylight. That's why you have Jemima pancakes, isn't it? You eat them first thing in the morning when it's daylight. And the name of the second Kiza and the name of the third uh, Karen Hapuka. And in all the land where and in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job an hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died, being old and full of days. So God blessed Job, didn't he? It says the latter end, he gave him twice as much as he had at the beginning. And so we're thankful that uh, even Job, placed back in the book of Genesis at least, in the time of Abraham, this Job should, this book should be placed. And so, even then, knew that God had promised a resurrection. In fact, you'll remember the famous words that we like to uh, quote of Job. He says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter days upon the earth. And though after the skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see him, or shall I see God, whom I shall behold for myself, and not another. He says, I'm going to be resurrected when this old body goes back to the dust and decays.